previously on Popping Collars. So wait, whether wait, 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 really quick. This is our 62nd episode, like the episode that follows 61 and is between before 63, but it doesn't only last for 60 seconds. I thought we were going to have to like Everyone's doing episodes now. <laughs> okay, uh, so should I say our 62th episode? <laughs> no, I think they got it. All right. <laughs> nobody has nobody has time to listen to a full podcast anymore. No, my attention span can't even handle that. <laughs> and the show's over. Thanks for coming, everybody. <laughs> All right. Welcome to Pop and Collars, the podcast that lives at the intersection of religion and culture. My name is Betsy Gonzalez, and I serve as the head chaplain at Episcopal High School here in beautiful and cicada-ridden Alexandria, Virginia. <laughs> With me is Greg Knight. Greg, where are you and what are you up to? Uh, I am in non-cicada-ridden Palm Beach, Florida, where I'm the director of Children and Youth Ministries down here. And I am currently uh, prepping for a trip to England I'm going to be walking 68 miles with 13 high schoolers from London to Canterbury. It's going to be great. Also with us is Sarah Condon. Where are you and what are you up to? Uh, We live in Houston, Texas, and I'm on staff at St. Martin's Episcopal Church, and I'm also a writer for Mockingbird Ministries. Oh, excellent. Welcome, Sarah. We also have another guest with us, too, and that is Ben Corshane. Ben, where are you and what are you up to? I am about 150 feet from you right now, I imagine, in my office on the campus of Episcopal High School, where I am an English teacher. Uh, And I'm happy to say that this podcast is my last homework assignment before summer vacation. (laughs) Excellent. Oh, we can all just smell summer here for sure. Well, friends, as we are descending nearer and closer to summer, depending on what neck of the woods you live in. This is our 63rd episode of Poppy Collars. And today's topic has most recently been a big win for Hulu. It began life as a book in 1985, and then it quickly forgotten about movie five years later, and now is finding another footing in a different time as a streaming series. We are talking about Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, a woman forced surrogacy in a dystopian future. So up front, We should name that the book and the series have similarities, but also some noted differences that people online jump up and down about. I think, you know, for Bible nerds, they've already referenced, you know, the Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah and all of the story. I always hope my kids can recognize when popular culture and faith come together. And this is just a touchstone show, a touchstone series. Um, Okay, so I haven't read The Handmaid's Tale, but... What I have read that this show makes me think of is The Red Tent, and uh, it's a midrashic sort of telling of the Jacob story from the perspective of Dina, the, the his one daughter. So that story, you know, is about Leah and about Rachel, but it also has Bilhah and Zilpah as, as, as really uh, central characters to the plot, whereas they're just kind of afterthoughts in the Bible. Like, I think what this show uh, makes us confront is the fact that no one's really an afterthought. Like everybody's, everybody's story matters. Right. And that's what, that's what, um, that's what institutional slavery, sexual slavery, the way that we see it play out in the world today. That's what it always re it reinforces this idea that, Oh, well, these, 
are people whose lives don't matter. These are people who don't matter, but everybody matters. And I think that that's sort of the, the thrust of the show that I think is hard to watch and yet is important for us to, to sort of notice, I think, as we go. One thing I'm always fascinated by in the church is how we revere certain women in scripture and then don't pay any attention to the others. And it's fascinating to me how much we revere um, Sarah. And then, you know, we just negate the fact that she like threw Hagar and a baby out in the desert on their own because she got mad. I mean, it's, um, it is that, I love that idea that we just, we, we forget because we forget that whole concept entirely that we forget that everyone has their own narrative running and everyone has their own life that they're living in. So many lives are sort of squandered for the sake of others. Yeah. I really liked how um, the show through its first six episodes has given us a whole bunch of off-red and, and, and allowing us to see this as her story, but has also started to shift a little bit and show us a little bit of um, what it's like to be, uh, one of the wives, the ladies uh, who wear green, uh, or or what it might be like to be on the outside of Gilead, um, you know, the ambassador from from Mexico coming in, and and she's faced with this real problem of of her of her um, country being, you know, infertile, um, and 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 no ch- no children being born there, and her having to face leading that country and that community. Well, in the politics of it, the show has gotten, you know, they're like, oh, well, this is a commentary on where life is now. And, you know, people marching in January with signs that said, you know, make Margaret Atwood's work fiction, you know, that (laughs) kind of stuff that it's finding, even though, you know, written in 1985, it's finding echoes in the culture. And I think that's because when Margaret, what Margaret Atwood tends to write always echoes in the culture. None of, she doesn't consider any of this fiction. Mm-hmm. This could all happen. Yeah, in, in fact, she is very plausible. All yeah, the time. she thought of it as a, as a remix, not a fantasy. She was basically, I mean, she wrote the book in West Berlin in 1984, just surrounded by a wall, you know, um, understanding very much, uh, even if just subconsciously, what it was like to live in, in 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 a society that felt very much like you were being watched, like you were under control. And so, I love I love thinking about the way that that is playing underneath uh, the story, even as we're, we're seeing echoes of modern U.S. politics uh, in, in what's happening. There's also, you know, we're being brought back to the 80s, and then we could probably go back decade after decade after decade and find communities that, that felt entrapped like this or felt sort of artificially constructed. From my perspective, watching the show anyway, the way that the story is told is basically like the whole of uh elizabeth moss's face right i mean it's 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 just everything's so in close-up and the times of the show that i really love are her is is when she flashes that defiant look which she does a lot um and because i think that that's like there's something about the human spirit that wants to defy i think like more than anything just wants to defy like whatever system you've got i just i love those moments where her eyes just cut the worst episode for me to watch um because i think it would be my version of hell is is when she's locked in the room is when she has to stay in a room and she's in the closet and she finds the carving and just that ability to just have you be in your room and they can't read there's no reading there's no anything 
and you're just waiting to be released from the room, how you have no control over your person. And I think, you know, and talking about the Black Lives Matter movement and things, you know, that that control over your body, having your body be able to be violated at any moment and be feeling at risk and in fear and what that constant exposure does to you and how you detach some from yourself. Have you guys, do you know the connection? And I'm not smart enough to have like read this somewhere, but I think I heard it on public radio as I, I gather mm-hmm. all my intelligent information these days. <laughs> yes. But, um, there, that Margaret Atwood had this relative who was a woman that was, um, they tried to hang her in the Salem uh, witch trials. Do y'all know this? Yes. What? No. So she had this um, relative. Her name was uh, Mary Webster. Mm-hmm. And Mary um, had been accused of, you know, witchcraft and some man had died. And, you know, Mary was going to take the fall for it. And, and so what Margaret Atwood discovered in her research was that they tried to hang Mary and they found her alive the next morning. Oh my God. So she wrote this, Margaret Atwood wrote this incredible poem called Half Hang Mary that you can look up and it's, it's just fantastic. But it's sort of about, it, it really rings of the kind of defiance that we see um, in the main character and June's character. And I think she dedicates The Handmaid's Tale. Again, haven't read the book, but I think she may dedicate it to Mary Webster. So anyway, it's worth looking up. It's pretty fascinating. Well, and all the hanging that's in the show. I mean, that, that uh, that's how that's how we're dealing with everybody is hanging and very much the echoes, yeah. particularly when um, of Glenn's lover is hung yeah. of, you know, the pictures that we see from other countries where people are hung by, yeah. you know, with cranes and, and things like that. Or from this country. I mean, so I majored in Southern studies at Ole Miss, mm-hmm. which is like, mm-hmm. you, know, you don't get more Southern than that. <laughs> right. First, like the first, couple of classes we had they had us look at those um, you know when they used to hang black people in mississippi it was like a it was like a fun town get together and so right. terrifying photographs of, of black people hanging in just small white children in picnic baskets underneath and you know it was in, it was imperative that they show that to a you know a student body of mostly white students so that we understood what we were getting ourselves into in this study, you know, um, and understood what the cost had been for so many people, as you said earlier, and having no control over their bodies um, at that point in time. So, yeah, I can't watch The Handmaid's Tale without thinking about the South. I mean, yeah, it will work. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could I could see someone watching episode one and maybe two of this show and thinking this is bleak man like there is no hope here and i wonder like we're seven episodes into i think a 10 episode first season (laughs) at this point do you think this is a hopeful story like do you think that this will ultimately be a liberating story it's like when everybody talks about the Holocaust, like we all would have done something when there were plenty of like good Christian Lutherans who opened their front door, peeked out and went, you know what? I'm good. Shut it and went back inside and waited for it to pass. Yeah. Like yeah. I just, I, I, I mean, I don't tend to be hopeful about humanity, which is, you know, not one of my most charming qualities, but. At this yeah, point, I, being hopeful would just mean that humanity continues <laughs> through procreation, and 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 uh, I mean it's that dire in this in this in this world, right? Like the humanity is dying off. Um, I'm not even sure I would use uh, hope to you to 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 qualified continuation, but um, right. it, I'm trying to put myself into um, into a position where 
fundamentally you're looking at a you know a 60 year die off of an entire species and everything you know and love everything you believe i guess coming out of that okay there's there's a way to there's a way to see that as hopeful as if 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 things will continue but i don't know if 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 um if hope is is the warm fuzzy word that i would use well i think when we talked about the resiliency like there is hope in that eye flash mm-hmm. of offreds right that this and now having seen, cause you know, this is popping collars. We don't have to say spoiler alert, but in seeing her husband alive yeah. and working to find her that, that, you know, that, and I love that they waited on that. They could have yeah. given that to you like episode three. Wait, wait, wait. And they really, if you're hanging on Greg, I think you're right. Like you're into this, into what this might look like. But Sarah, what you were talking about in terms of referencing the Holocaust I, I was I, in my poking around and reading and researching for this. You know, the Atlantic has loved writing about the show. They've done some really good pieces. They do a great piece on guilt about the show. Mm-hmm. And they talked a lot about the idea of complicity in this world, that there's this element of like when, when, uh, when June's being fired from her job and everyone's being fired and the guy's just standing there going, you know, everyone made me do it. You know, I can't do anything about it. I'm sorry. Yeah, and that they reference along the way in the flashbacks as the world is deteriorating. We should have done something when this happened. We should have done something when this happened. We should have run when this happened. And then that very disturbing element of the salvaging where all the handmaids kill that guy who raped a handmaid. Evidently, that's what they were told, right? So it just that element of, when we pray in the church, you know, the evil we have done and the evil done on our behalf, like there's a, they're really dragging you in to be complicit in the slow takedown of, as Ben said, all that you know and love. And I find that to be the most, the thing that hits me most pointedly as somebody living today and thinking about my life today. It's funny when we're talking about being complicit, I think what was even the context? I mean, we we don't have, that's such a new Mm -hmm. thing to think about. I mean, Mm -hmm. not just in our day-to-day interactions and seeing laws change in this country, but also just like the amount of global information we have that we're complicit in right now is, you know, I mean, it's, it's just our wretched estate. I mean... Yeah, I mean, uh, like human trafficking is a perfect example, right? I mean, it's like you have a Super Bowl or you have Olympics and all of a sudden a massive amount of people use that as an opportunity to exploit other human beings and like sell them on the market. And that's information that, you know, in like 1950, whatever, we wouldn't have necessarily known out in the open, but now with the amount of information that we have, we know that these are these large events are events where people are trafficked. And yet, Super Bowl is still the highest rated show, you know, of the year. Uh, Olympics are still pulling in big bucks. They're still talking cities into doing it, even though Rio is in a state of like decline as a result of having been bankrupted by this thing. I mean, it's just the the amount of exploitation, the amount of stuff that we know now and yet are still willing to participate because well there's got to be an olympics there's got to be a super bowl there's got to be all this stuff right and yeah some people are going to get hurt in the process but oh well entertainment's entertainment you know that's that's part of what's core to how gilead works which is is thinking about 
people as means to an end, right? Um, that's that's the entire plight of the handmaids, right? Is they are they are a means to somebody else's end, and they are they are not imagined as beings with ends and li- lives and goals and desires and um, internal worlds of their own. We just honored a woman here who has done work in uh, human trafficking here at school. And she encouraged people to take the slavery footprint quiz that you can take online to see how many slaves are working for you in your footprint. So like I have 55 slaves who are working for me in my footprint based off of own your car and the clothes I own and the amount of things I own and the phone I own and all of those sorts of things. And, and that sort of, you know, you get that information and then you're kind of like, what am I going to do with that? Like, how do I, how do I activate that out in the world? And I'm super jazzed that our kids here are really activated about it. And like, what can we do? How do we, how do we get involved in this and how do we move forward? Uh, but that, I think the scope and scale of what human trafficking looks like now, just to kind of have someone really lay it out for you and to then say, these are, these are the slaves who are working for me. Like to, how do I own it? The interesting thing to me though, about this question of, of being complicit is that like, if you were to ask a citizen of Gilead, one of these elite people, they would actually say that their lives are not complicit at all. And that's sort of where we get into this danger theologically um, in any major religion where we're like, we, like, we will, like, we will be the Pharisees. Like we will have all these laws and get all of it. Right. We will fix everything about ourselves. Right. There's this um, great, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's this great um, evangelical like radio preacher from the fifties. And he had this, like, he had this sermon where he's like, when the, when the children are all, ho- are all home by 5 p.m. and dinner's on the table and, and no one drinks alcohol and everyone uses kind words, like then you'll know the devil is in charge. Right. You know, so it's mm-hmm. like this kind of, the, the, this question of being complicit and sort of thinking about our choices is really fascinating because I think it's also very dangerous, you know, mm-hmm. like it, it, because we just don't have that much control. It's yeah. fascinating to think about the, the character of the, um, the Mexican ambassador. Uh, you know, she's there thinking about whether or not her country is going to enter into this trade agreement with Gilead, trading what like chocolate for 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 people, right? And and she's a likable character in so many ways. And you see her as a, or at least I see her as a, a sensitive, sort of humane um, character. And yet she still gets herself to a place where she is willing to make the deal, make the trade. That sometimes I just get kind of lost in the the effects that fertility can have and infertility can have on a relationship because the value on fertility in the bible is huge right because it's about descendants it's about covenant it's about continuing it's about god's promise and god showing love and love equals babies right because it's about a people yeah it's a story about a people you have to have people to 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 do the story yeah right because how are you going to be in the god squad you have to be born in the god squad we're not converting anybody to judaism you have to be born in and it was i was just i was telling greg i was just started reading about it for using it in my bible class the rob bell book you know what is the bible and he has this one of his opening chapters is about the how when moses died uh, he still, the translation is he still had clear vision, like strong vision, and he had strength in his body, right? And the Hebrew word for strength is lido, which also translates into moisture. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and that he then traces that back through. That's actually still about sex. It's still about the ability to be strong in your body so that 
you know, Moses can still get it up. Yeah. Even though he's just died at 120, whatever years old he was. So it's like just that biblical emphasis being able to be fertile, very fertile. You know, Betsy, what you're talking about, like the virility there, right? Like in the in the way that that's that's important. There's also there's also something sort of biological and natural, and we haven't even talked about desire in this story in the way that it's sort of starting to peek through with the the commander sort of grabbing the leg uh, uh, during the during the ceremony, or um, the way that um, other in- individuals in the story are expressing passion and desire and hiding it. The stories are becoming a kind of um, thin mask for other kinds of human interactions. I don't know that, but how the story is, is, is for me be getting thinner and thinner. Um, the devoutness of the, of the players behind Gilead is, is a little threadbare as the season's going on. I don't know if others are feeling that way or if that's just a, a take, but I'm starting to see some chinks in the armor of, of the higher ups. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I was fascinated by that. I was, I was really, I love the moment of, um, intimacy between the commander and his wife, which I'm, Mm -hmm. again, I didn't read the book, but it seems like I'm not like sex between them must be forbidden because it's because they they can't make babies. Like Mm -hmm. it it felt like this thing of like, well, we shouldn't be doing this, but we're going to do this. But then they just let themselves do it. And, um, you know, I tend to work in a sort of a theological construct of like law versus gospel. And it's so fascinating to watch like, the harder the law gets pushed down, like the more people are like just grasping for some freedom, you know, um, even people who are running the show, who are laying down the law, right, are still grasping for this freedom. So Betsy, when you first started this conversation, we were talking about kind of the the text, the scriptural text that kind of over mm-hmm. oversees the story is the Jacob and Rachel text. I mean, that's what they have to read mm-hmm. before um, essentially Alfred gets raped every month. Right. Um, yep. That's uh, that's, that's the scripture that's being read. I was thinking when we're, when, when we were talking about that defiance, that defiant look um, there's something, there's something a little bit of Job in the story too. Now, certainly because of the suffering and all of that stuff, but there's this sense that, you know, something horrible is happening to you and it's not your fault. And it's okay for you to say, this is horrible and it's happening to me and it's not my fault and F off because this is happening to me. Right. Like right. I, I think that, I think that Job is an amazing example of humanity sort of standing up to God and saying, you know, screw you for this. Right. Because, because ultimately that's, that's the place where we kind of can stand. Um, and yeah, yeah, we, we didn't conquer the Leviathan and we didn't create the world and all of that other stuff that God says to Job and that book. But what humanity can do is, is stand in defiance of God. Like we do have that power. And I sort of see that in Alfred's in those in those close-ups of Alfred, just sort of saying, "This isn't the world. This isn't the world that we need, and this isn't the world that I need to live in." Like I can, I can defy this. I can defy whatever is created. All of this, like I love the way that Sarah framed it. Right, all of this law that's coming at me, I can be that gospel, like rising up out of this. Yeah, it's yeah. that um, that when she got to freak out in the car, when she got to just bang in the car and let it off. Um, you know, Atwood has talked about, she said that nobody is, there's no such thing as liberal, literal interpretation of the Bible. 
everything is interpretation. You know, that everything, it's not just saying we're going to follow everything here, frame by frame, word by word. It's all about cr- a creation that's inside a framework and a mindset. So that what we're seeing is a creation and a framework inside a fertility crisis. And this is what that this, this looks like. And a fertility crisis brought on by, we're not even quite sure what. When I was a kid, my parents are both in agriculture and my parents are like weirdly liberal for being from Mississippi. And, um, and my dad had this farmer over and I was sitting uh, at the, y'all feel free to cut this because I'm rambling, but I was sitting before the television as a teenager and I'm watching MTV and there's like boys to men on, you know, something like that. And my, my so this farmer looks at my dad and he said, he said, uh, don't you miss how it was back in the good old days? You know, with the subtext being like when black people weren't on television. And my right. dad looked at him and he said, son, in the good old days, people died of the common cold. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were writers for the, the Federalist uh, or a fundamentalist uh, uh, organization that are, re- are watching The Handmaiden's Tale with interest because they think it um, it is a uh, horrific sort of a depiction of the way that gay men in this country are uh, using surrogate women, uh, w- women to have their babies, right? And is it is a way what? to like see exactly, right? Yeah, exactly. What's going on? From with my sort of English teacher hat on, the idea that you know interpretation is a choice. You're responsible for the choices you make. You're responsible for the interpretations you bring to the text, and then by extension to the world. And we are we are living. The, the thing about Gilead is it's somebody's interpretation made real. That that's the nightmare. That's the horror of 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 that of that situation. Is that there's, is that it's a world where there is pure interpretation. It's one interpretation. This chain is getting to me. You made a slave. I want to be set free. Our world. No, we. Your world is you. I wish that you would see. I don't have money. Ain't got a name. All I got from you is a dollar or two and a woman around to blame. I don't have money. Don't have fame. All oh, God's my word, and this here bird, and a woman around to blame. This way. Okay, we're gonna hope it doesn't conk out. It's weighing me down. All right, so this is the point in the show when we do what I forget what name we've settled on for this. We, we, we settled on staff picks because staff we decided pick. employee sounds too. Uh, too authoritative or too too, Hand, too handmaid's picks. There's a little too much authority happening. Let's not do yeah. that. So staff, staff, staff sounds pick. friendlier. It does. This sounds like this harkens back to your blockbuster video that has. You know, I'm really into what Serena's into. She's really funky in that Cure T-shirt, and she seems to pick cool movies. So, so, um, so, Greg, you had something you wanted to recommend to the yeah, team. I do, I do, I do, and I, I have something to recommend that's not a television show, and it's not a movie, and it's not a book. 
Uh, I have music to recommend what? for a change. Like we 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 yeah. rarely recommend yeah. music oh. on this show. So here's the thing: I, I I know Betsy is one of these people. Uh, you run into these bands every now and then that you just decide like this band has tapped into something inside of you, and you're going to stick with them no matter what, no matter where they go, no matter what they do. You're just going to get their stuff. Do you know how much I paid for you two tickets in a, next week? <laughs> you're referencing that, aren't you? So. Uh, Okay, yes. Who is it? The Gorillas. The Gorillas have a new album out called Humans. I I I gotta tell you. So I love the Gorillas. Uh this is their fourth album. Twenty-six songs on this whole album that they put 26. out. Um of all this material that they've that they've amassed. And anyway, uh it's all about hip hop and it's all about uh dance and it's all about um uh, R and B and soul and uh, a little bit of British uh, new wave in there. It's it's just it's so fabulous the way that the music can turn on a dime and change from one genre to another and mix a few things and shake a few things up and and uh, and what comes out is all of this sort of experimental, really hypnotizing uh, music. I have been in the in the bag for the gorillas uh, ever since they started and wholeheartedly recommend please go to Spotify right now uh, check out the their new album it's it's fabulous it's glorious uh, it's called humans by the gorillas uh, so that's what that's my pick for this time who, who Sarah and Ben who is the band that you will follow to the end of the world if you had to kind of have your band? That no matter what anybody says, you love them. <laughs> like the lamest Christian answer. Kirk Franklin, the gospel singer, like how like by anything that man does. I've listened to him since I was like a geeky kid in Mississippi, like in the theater club. And we would play him at like the after party for our cast shows. And it was like that one time where like all the nerdy kids and like the closeted kids whose dads are Baptist preachers could just like cut loose to some gospel music. So yeah, I'll, I'll buy anything that man makes. Nice. Is that like, do you want a revolution <laughs> stuff? Like I want a revolution every morning. My kids are in the car. Like, it's so loud. I'm like, do you want a revolution? <laughs> I, I have, yeah. I have, I have really, really uh, incredible memories of, driving in an IROC T-top with my dad and listening to Bruce Springsteen. And I, I have not really worked through all of that yet, but for some reason I will <laughs> listen to Bruce Springsteen no matter what, anywhere. I'm always looking for different versions of the same songs. Um, so I have no idea what the source of it is, but but Bruce is, Bruce is in my heart. So this has been our episode of Popping Colors. I want to thank Ben and thank Sarah for being with us. Thank you for talking some handmaids with us. You can find Popping Collars in all the places that you get your podcast needs met. That can be Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever. We also come to you on Episcopal Cafe. We love Episcopal Cafe and we know that you will too. Please uh, watch us there and get all your Episcopal news needs met there as well. Uh, rate and review our podcast is a great way to help people find us. So thank you, Ben. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Greg, for joining us on this episode. Keep those colors pop. Mm-hmm.